This is Sports Point. Sports Point, the latest in sport from Highland Prestshire and beyond. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Nathaniel Goddard, and you're listening to this week's episode of Sports Point. Joining me this week and here to bring some good quality nonsense is Heartland Breakfast host Graham Howie. How are you, Graham? I'm good, thank you. Always a pleasure. Always is, absolutely. And also joining us is the Pitlockery Bowling Club Secretary, John Greenshields. How are you, John? I'm very well, thanks. Been painting a fence today, so it's nice to sit down and have a bit of a break. Oh, painting painting a fence sounds absolutely, (laughs) sounds like a good way to spend your day when you've got nothing else to do, particularly when the weather has been as nice as it has been the last couple of days. Indeed. Um, But we'll jump into some of the bowling. And John, I think the, the first bit to start really is of just telling us how as a bowling club you've been dealing with working around the pandemic and all of the various restrictions and lockdowns and regulations that have just come in place over the last sort of 18 odd months. Right um, well obviously last year there was very little play at all uh, during the course of the year because of the restrictions and because of the anxieties and fears that were around. Um, so this year with the help of Bowl Scotland who have been issuing regular updates on what the regulations and restrictions actually say. Uh, We've been taking a a measured approach to getting back to play on the green. Um, Lots of the events and the competitions uh, that we would have with other clubs have not taken place this year, but we have been steadily working towards uh, getting back to some kind of normality. It's been a slowly, slowly approach but uh, we've been grateful for all those who've been coming to support as we're, we're beginning to get into the, the rhythm again. Yeah, Graham, we've seen a lot of things that taken that. It, it has taken its time to get out, but as we will know from going out and playing rounds of golf and just being able to go outside and you know, do something a little bit more active when you've been sort of had what we've had, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks where we have had this very nice weather, I think is going to have been beneficial for everybody. Absolutely. And I've always been surprised that the, the bowling aspect of sport took so long to sort of get out of the fold because, you know, maybe indoor bowls, I can understand that being more restricted, but outdoor bowls, I could never quite understand why they were so late in being allowed to effectively get back to some sort of, you know, as John says, some sort of normality. But it's so important. And we've been lucky. I mean, we were commenting just the other day when we were playing some golf. Um, that really, you know, pr- pretty much weather-wise, it's been a great summer. It really has. We can't complain. Even if we don't get any more sunshine for the rest of the year, it really has been very good. Let's hope we get a decent, you know, last-minute spell and into the autumn so that we can maximise on now, as John says, being able to play bowls and, of course, uh, other outdoor sports as well, because it's so important for the health of the nation, for our mentality, after what has been, you know, just apart from the work restraints and the financial restraints for so many people, the sporting restraints and not being able to get out and play whatever sport is your fancy with with your team and with your friends. Yeah, absolutely. John, how long have you been sort of with the guidelines of Bowl Scotland been able to have sort of regular meetings now? Uh, we've been able to start start playing uh, from almost the beginning of the season, um, but initially with fairly clear uh, guidelines in place about keeping a distance from people, socially distanced. Um, what Graham says is, is absolutely right. We, you know, we have wondered why are some of these restrictions in place? Some of the issues were not so much to do with what happens on the green, where you can keep apart from others if you, you, you make your plans carefully, but getting access to all the equipment which is in the clubhouse in a more restricted space. Um, so when we started back, Uh, there were very clear rules about not having more than one person in the clubhouse at a time. Um, And that helped us to get things moving again. Um, But I think by and large, since the start of the season, we've been able to do some outdoor bowls of some kind. And in the last six weeks, um, that has increased uh, considerably. So that uh, recently we've had some competitions, club competitions, uh, which were pretty much like normal, 
Um, although when we go inside again, people must be seated a meter apart, etc., and must be, have masks on until they're seated at tables uh, in the clubhouse. Uh, I, I, just what other folks have been observing as well. But from a finance point of view, John, I'm assuming that so much of your income must come from the clubhouse. So overall, it must have been, or it must still continue to be, an incredibly difficult time for you financially. Yeah, well, we've been uh, encouraged and helped by receiving some grants. I think a number of, of bowling clubs have received grants, uh, and that has helped considerably. Uh, obviously, our membership fees uh, last year um, were not required, although a number of members did pay their fees, knowing full well that they couldn't play. Um, they wanted to let the club know that they were supporting the club uh, financially, even if they couldn't use the benefits of the club. Um, so we have been helped considerably by grants received and also by people paying fees uh, who didn't need to. Um, so we're actually okay financially just now. Um, which is just as well because we've got some significant improvements planned for our clubhouse and the surrounding area. Uh, some have happened and some are to take place in the next few months. Sounds like a very busy, busy time with the clubhouse. And one of the things we've, we've spoken about with other people and other sports um, is that ability to have that social aspect. And we, we've had, um, we had Eric on from the Eberfeldy Bowls Club and they was, he was saying about how nice it was to be able to get you know, all the, load the members back, sit, even sit around outside and have that sort of social chat. If that's something you've been able to manage now with the restrictions lifting, being able to get a bit more social aspect back in as well as obviously playing some more bowls. Uh, yes, we, we observe all the track and trace requirements uh, so that we keep a note of everyone who's, the, who's around at the club on, on any given day. Um, but with this weather, as Graham was mentioning, it's been great to, to be able to, to be outdoors in warm weather. And we've got lots of benches all around the green. It's actually in a beautiful location, the Pitlochry Bowling Green, um, with wonderful views. So even if you're not interested in bowls, it's a great place actually to come and just sit and admire the views. Um, so we have been able to, to do that. Social events have, have not really taken off as yet. Many of the social events need the facility of the clubhouse without any distancing in the clubhouse. Um, so we're gradually working towards that. Um, but outdoors, it's, it's been great and people have been enjoying it and benefiting from it. What sort of member levels do you have in terms of how many numbers and people participate with the club? Our membership at present is just under 40. Um, it was higher. Uh, sadly, we lost one of our members to COVID and a few others uh, have uh, been ill and some have died. Um, so our membership has come down a little bit and some members may have chosen not to play this year um, and wait till next year because of concerns about COVID and the ongoing situation. Um, so it's fairly small membership. We're hoping to increase it. Uh, we would love to see more people coming and playing. Um, we've actually, can I mention a special offer we've got? Normally we ask uh, Go if then. people want to come and play, yeah. uh, it's £3 per game. Wow. Um, but if folks are interested in trying it out, we'll give them three free sessions before we ask for any payment. Um, and then if they want to join the club, everyone is paying half price membership this year. So it's £35 for the full year which is quite a good deal. Oh, and I thought I thought we got a good deal. We paid £14, £14 for a round of golf. I mean, that's yes, quite, a good, we, quite a good offer. And we managed to play on the fairways, which seemed to be a bit of a novel, novel thing for us. <laughs> that does seem incredibly cheap, John, and a very, very good offer. But, but presumably you still need your own set of bowls. Uh, no, we have sets of bowls in the clubhouse um, and we've got spare shoes as well so that uh, if people come along, they don't have bowls, they don't have shoes, we can kit them out with uh, all that they need uh, to, to try the, the sport. And um, a few have been doing that recently and the, the signs are encouraging that uh, they're planning to come back and hopefully we'll get some more members uh, through that. Okay, there's, there's also a question, if, if, if I can, Nathaniel, that I've yeah. always wanted to ask for bowling, but you've got such a, a square area outside and you've got the border, 
I can't think it'd be that much money, would it be, to put out some sort of reasonably temporary tropolin to allow you to play in the winter but still play outdoors? But I never see anybody doing that. No, um, I don't know anywhere that happens. I think in terms of, of care of the green, uh, our greenkeepers might be a bit concerned about uh, having a cover over the green in the winter when a, a lot of feeding takes place and a lot of uh, tending of the green. Um, we do play indoors in the winter uh, and that's not weather dependent, which is great. Um, we have a short mat bowls uh, indoors in the clubhouse in the winter. Um, it's an interesting suggestion, Graham. If you find a club that does that, can you let me know? Because we'd be interested to, to see that well, in operation. If, 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 you can, if you can grow lettuce and other you know, such delights in the wintertime throughout Scotland in some sort of greenhouse, why can't you have a some sort of plastic tropolin on a metal frame which folds or whatever or is reasonably secure but still uh, allows the light in that can be folded back whenever it's required to let the rain in and natural light? Uh, if crops can be grown under such conditions, why can't uh, the grass grow at the bowling green? It's a fair point. I think we've had this conversation. We had this conversation with outdoor tennis courts as well about putting whether you can put a cover over because there are a lot of sports we see that stop stop in the winter time because of the weather. I, my biggest concern is how are you going to keep that warm? We stood there trying to play bowls in like three layers of thermals and a big thick coat and you know portable those outdoor heaters they used to have in, uh, in well, pubs. I, I think you'll find uh, bowlers are hardy are a hardy lot, and anything just to put, put, we just put more on. Yes, <laughs> and waterproofs. Just an idea. Um, so it, it sounds, sounds like an, it, that sounds like your dragon's den idea, there, Graham. Yeah, <laughs> it would it would have to be a big cover. Um, the the dimensions of a bowling green roughly about twenty six meters square. Um, so well, it's how, a fair area to cover. How many games could you get in in a half a green? In half a green. Yes. Um, you would probably get three three. Uh, opportunities, three games, three rinks. Would that be enough to be viable? It could be. Um, it's how, it's how would you, it would it's how would you then structure your cover? Because if you covered the whole thing, obviously, um, John said about the fact there's there's benches around, so there's obviously some sort of like pathway around. So you'd run it up and down the pathways on a on set of wheels. Yes. If you're doing that, that halfway down, you'd then be running half of it down the grass and you're then not in risk of running sort of a, a track line down the middle of the grass. It's a very thin track line and it's worth it to be able to continue playing in the winter and then you move it on one half for half the week and you, you move it to the other half for the other half so that the, the grass is still getting natural light and natural rain. Sounds like a very interesting idea but uh, we'll just move on a little bit from um, Graham and his Dragon's Den pitch and we'll we'll wait to see you on that one but I think one of the things we, we've we've noticed with with bowls and we've said about it with with bowls before and with golf is you know a lot of people see it as this sport for people when you retire um now i used to think that with golf and actually going and playing it it's really not so what sort of, le sort of age ranges of participants do you have um in sort of your in your members already they're mainly seniors they would mainly be over 55s i think that's the definition of seniors although some people might shoot me for saying that but i think uh, over 55s most of our members are in that category. Um, we've got a few younger members and we're, we're keen to get more. Um, we have a category of membership which is called junior membership. Um, in recent years before uh, the pandemic, we were able to welcome uh, school groups from the local uh, school uh, who would come for a, a games afternoon and we had a number of classes who came in and tried it out. And some seemed really quite interested. It's sustaining the interest after that that's the challenge. Although we're drawing towards the close of our outdoor season, uh, the indoor season will start soon. And we're planning ahead for next year to have some fun days, open days, when we encourage people to come, people of all ages, to come and have a go and uh, see if they, they like the game. And if so, try and get them coming back and, and playing a bit more. Um, so we're, we're looking at how we can attract uh, younger people. I think there are lots of sports in that same bracket. Um, but if you look at the some of the competitions that are on television, the bowls competitions, um, many of the stars are young people. And uh, they actually seem to make quite a lucrative living from it. 
and going around all the, the tournaments uh, around the world. So there are lots of younger bowlers around, although trying to get rid of this notion that uh, it's for retired, it's for elderly, um, is a challenge, uh, Nathaniel. Yeah, Graham, we spoke, obviously we've spoken about um, sports being played in school and um, the, one, of the, one of the golf clubs up in Highland Perth, you have a, they have a, a juniors evening on, I think it's on a Thursday or something, and they've been getting quite good participation for, for junior golf. And we, we know that, you know, getting kids to, to commit to something, particularly when they don't play it in school, is very difficult. But do you think that bowls is one that, you know, could be one that they look to do to try and push through because actually in the winter months if you've got if you've got a hall and you can get hold of a couple of mats it may be something that's that's a good activity as opposed to this go-to let's just play dodgeball i don't see any reason why not and the whole key for sports longevity is being able to attract the youth market and i remember back in my school days which i hate to think how many years ago that is now uh, there were two sports that i played the first was golf which i'd never picked up a golf club before and it was a mum that said the local professional golf club is offering free lessons for people under 16 or something every Friday night for the next six weeks. And you're just going to hit some balls out in the field. Why don't you go along and see how you get on? And I learned the basics there over the course of six weeks of how to hold the club, the, the whole thing about the swing and the different club lengths and what the ball could do, how to putt, how to take a drive shot and the whole nature of the golf. And that was the basis for me having, you know, a long and enjoyable amateur golf games and spending you know over the course of years probably thousands of pounds on clubs and money going into the sport and I had the same experience with uh, with curling and it was my chemistry teacher who decided to take us all curling on a Thursday night at the local club out with the school I, I hated chemistry I was hopeless at it I had a terrible relationship with her uh, but as it turned out I was actually quite good at uh, curling and we thoroughly enjoyed it now we went we went there actually as an excuse to keep her happy, thinking that she would uh, lay off us, which didn't work. But we certainly bonded with her with a curling and we absolutely loved it. It's a great game. Now, I would never have thought as a youngster that curling is something that I would have enjoyed. And I see no reason. I mean, bowling is similar and probably the, the nearest to curling that there is. And if you get the youth market and you get some sort of incentive and you teach them how to do it, from the schools or by having open nights. That's the future for any sport. If you don't do it, then you face the future at your peril. Yeah, absolutely. Um, John, you, you've said about that you've done a lot of this before, but I think, the, how did you get into bowling? Is it something that you came at from a sort of a younger age or is it something you came at as you got sort of, as you said, you've got a lot of members in your club who are seniors. Is it something you got to at that point or is it you went to it a little bit younger because you you needed something to do? No, I only started bowling um, about 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago. And it was really because of my neighbour, who was a keen member of the bowling club. Uh, he invited me along one evening to, to have a try. And uh, I thought I quite liked this. I'd always fancied bowling, um, but never really had had a lot of time to devote to any particular sport. Um, so he invited me along and uh, taught me the, the basics. Um, and I found folks in the club were very helpful. They were all very welcoming, um, all keen to give you some tips and encouragement um, to show you the basics. Um, and that was how I got started. So that was 10 years or less uh, that, that I started the, the sport and uh, thoroughly have enjoyed it ever since. But is it, isn't it interesting what young people go for? The boy wonders, I call him. That's my son, <laughs> uh, Alex, who's a nine in October. There's a bowling green in front of his house and I've caught him standing there on a Saturday afternoon through the bedroom window watching him and he keeps saying to me when can we go bowling now he's too young at the moment uh, why but well because in that particular club they don't they don't have that facility and I've really got to be there with him I'm not going to be there at right. the end. Right. Um, but it's something that we will do in the next a couple of years but you can see his attention and his interest being sparked in it now mm -hmm. he's he's a great sports fan he doesn't like contact sports he doesn't understand the mentality of running around a field being hit by other people. He thinks it's stupid. And from a logic point of view, when you're, you know, when you're eight, nine years old, there, there is a logic to that. He's very good at uh, catching a ball. He's very good at gymnastics. He's very good at, at athletics. He's very good at dancing. So he's got a great uh, sort of a, a balance in that type of thing. And he loves 
American bowling. He absolutely loves it and he's very, very good at it. He can't wait to get out, out in the green. And that's simply by seeing people playing. And he's already got an understanding of how the, the, the game actually works. So the, the television element is important because there was a, a I think it was at the Dewar Centre, was it the Dewar Centre? They were sure, having, yes. And he watched a little bit of that with me some time ago. And he was enthralled, absolutely enthralled. So I, I think if it wasn't on television, that wouldn't have sparked his interest in the first place. Yeah. And then by chance, he's got a very good view of what looks like to be quite a good bowling club in Edinburgh. And he's he's itching to get on. So any facility that would be open for someone of his age, I think you'd have him for life. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know about other clubs, but we have a couple of sets of bowls that are much smaller than um, most bowls. So that if youngsters come along and their hands are quite small, uh, they can still have a good game of bowls using the, the sets that we've purchased for that purpose. But it's, 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 but it's a young age thing, isn't it? Where you get to understand eye to ball coordination yeah. and, and, and gauging weight, whether a weight is in bowling or whether it's in curling or even if you're playing, he, he, he loves tennis. And it's the same principle when you're doing a return shot or any shot in tennis, you've got to gauge the weight of the ball in relation to the speed you're receiving it and the speed that you want to return it and the distance you want to return it. So the concept is, is exactly the same. I, I don't really think it's it's any different. But interesting at school, John, uh, they've had people around from the LTA giving them lessons at seven years old on the local playing field, which has actually quite a few decent outdoor uh, tennis courts. But I don't think there's been any approach from the local bowling clubs. And there are lots of bowling clubs in Edinburgh. It's a very, very popular yeah. game. As far yeah. as I'm aware, there have not been any approaches to the school at any level to encourage children, why don't you come along this afternoon at three o'clock or four o'clock mm. or whatever it is, to actually go bowling, which seems a shame. Yes, yes. Um, just before we move away from, from the bowling, um, John, are there any sort of big upcoming, you've mentioned a couple of ideas of planning for fun days, any big events, any big competitions coming up? Obviously, you said the season's coming to a close, but things to watch out for um, in the next season for, for Pitlockley Bowling Club? Yeah, well, we're hoping to, to get all the, the various competitions up and running uh, next year. We start, uh, we have our outdoor season from April to, to September, end of September, beginning of October. And then the indoor season runs until the following April when we switch again to, to outdoors. Uh, we have competitions indoors. Uh, we have regular bowl sessions indoors. Um, and it's actually quite a good way to start because it's it's a short mat bowl, so it's not as long um, to, to play the bowls. And uh, you're not dependent on the weather, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And next, next season, um, next outdoor season, we're hoping that we can engage again in inter-club competitions. Um, not too long ago, the Pitlochry Club actually won the North Perthshire League two seasons in a row. So uh, we're hopeful that uh, we can compete in that again next year. Um, we have singles competitions ongoing just now, and we're hoping that the finals of the gents and ladies singles will be played uh, late in September. And we'll put a notice out about that in the clubhouse and um, spread it around so that if folks would like to come and watch that, that's always an enjoyable time where uh, you see quality play from uh, four people. So really, we're, we're hoping to, to get all the normal things back again uh, next season. Um, depending on the numbers we have and how many things we can handle, friendlies, competitions within the club, uh, inter-club competitions. Some folks have even played in the national championships at AIR that are held every July. Um, and you go through various district qualification events to get to that. Uh, so all of that's in the pipeline. Sounds very good. You'd have to let us know when you have an amateur rookie night, come along and give it a try and Wayne Graham will have to come down and yeah, have a shot. <laughs> Some serious damage that you and I could do in the final. Oh, I dread to think. Right, we'll, we'll put your names down now. <laughs> yes, yes. But I'm going to use bowls now as my segue into the Paralympics because we won a gold medal in boccia, which from is, is actually very, very similar to bowls. Um, and David Smith retained his medal from Rio, and he's got five medals in it. I mean, John, can you do you know how much do you know about boccia? Obviously, it shares some similarities with bowls. 
I, I thought that when I saw some uh, film of it uh, when I was watching the Paralympics, uh, the, the same kind of principle um, of getting your bowl or your ball near the, the jack um, without the, the bias, you know, bowls are biased, so they're not actually spherical, but uh, mm. they do have a bias, so they, they move to one side or the other, depending on, on how you throw them. But there did seem to be a lot of similarities, and the, the delight on that, that lad's face when he won was something to behold. That, that was a great moment. Yeah, uh, Graham, do we do we think then that obviously we've we've got Botcher in the Paralympics, which does share a lot of similarities, and it's it's an incredible game to watch. Just the 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 ability to that they have some of the, these players have to you know to get that. I think I absolutely absolutely fail at it, but I think you know we we always talk about legacy with the Paralympics and with the Olympics, and the, the, um, David Smith's legacy is going to be you know he's retained his medal. That's going to give a huge boost to people that actually this is a sport that we could try and look at what this person's achieved. And he's spoken in um, detail about, how, you know, how he changed his routine and his, his lifestyle and bits during the, the pandemic to try and help him himself. And, you know, the legacy of this is going to be quite, quite phenomenal for him. Yes, it will be. And, and it goes to say, I think, I, I, I would almost think that and argue that the Paralympics have been more successful than the, the Olympics. And we found this member way back in London as well, where so many people have been inspired because it was on home turf and the Paralympics turned out to be just as well supported as, as the uh, the starting Olympics. And, uh, you know, this has been a pattern which has grown and grown. And it's a good example. I mean, I've been critical of new sports which they brought into the Olympics. I don't have any argument whatsoever with Boccia because you can clearly see the skill that is there, the dedication that is there and the sacrifices that these athletes, and they are athletes, uh, have made uh, for what has been, you know, could be classed as a traditional game. But it, it's across the whole front of, of the Paralympics. I mean, if you look at Sarah's story, getting 17 gold medals, I mean, it, it, it's, inspiring doesn't even come near to it, Nathaniel. And if you okay. think of, the, of the, the sacrifice that they've had to make through COVID, we've all had to do it. If you're a Paralympian with limited resources, which many of them unfortunately are, with not the same, anywhere near the same level of support, uh, that you know the Olympic athletes have have enjoyed uh, for for this level of success and Botch is a great example. The Sarah story, all these the success we've had. I mean, it's across all all the the different uh, sports entrants that we that we put in. It's nothing short of phenomenal. Yeah, well, you, it's funny there that you mentioned um, Dame Sarah story because she's on my on my thing to talk about most sex, successful Paralympian, seventeen gold medals, a total of twenty eight medals across two disciplines in swimming and cycling. Yes, and has come out and said, I think, I think she. Well, I'm not going to say the exact. She's in her forties and has already gone. You know, I've got my sights set on Paris in three yes. years' time. I mean, that's incredible, Absolutely. isn't it? Yes, yes. And, I, and I think she'll probably, she'll probably do very well. Well, not she'll win gold or not. I, I, I don't know. And it's more difficult physically, it's just a medical fact, it's more difficult physically to have long-lasting success in sport than it is for the Olympian uh, athletes. So that makes this feat and future progress even more astounding. I mean, just absolutely astounding. I know. And, John, you look at the medal table, I mean, we are, we're sitting second, we've got 96 medals, 34 golds, 27 silvers and 35 bronze. I mean, there's no chance we're catching the Chinese. I have no idea how China have done it that well. They've got 77 gold medals. I mean, that's just incredible in its own right. Yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, the, the way that the legacy from this will carry over, particularly when I think that the legacy that Sarah's story is going to bring when people look at that and go, actually, that's what that that's, you know, that's going to inspire absolutely. a lot of people. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Nathaniel. And, and two things come, come to mind. One is the funding that this will, will hopefully mean, and it should mean that the funding gates remain open, if not actually bigger, because it's all down to what success you get. So this expands the, the Paralympian movement. It brings in even more money more opportunities for, for more athletes at all different levels. And so many of the, the stories have been similar in that, you know, I sat in my office, I sat at home, I was a youngster when I watched the Paralympians in London in 2012, and here I am doing exactly the same thing. I mean, that is just the, the, the story of legends. And that it looks like it's going to continue to grow, which is, again, it's great for the country and it's, it's, it's wonderful for anyone who is maybe possibly in a, a smaller type of sport or has some sort of disability because now they will be able to qualify at some level to be a Paralympian. 
Yeah, and um, from a from a personal point of view, uh, Leslie Stewart is one to watch. Uh, from Blair, Blair Gowrie was a member of the military and, and lost had a leg, leg amputated, but she's off to go um, coming up over the weekend with the, the the power shooting, the rifle shooting there. So best of luck to that, particularly for, from a local point of view. I mean, yes, to see people there is, is really good. But we'll move on to the U.S. Open tennis, and I have to, I have to, we have to feel sorry for Joanna Contra at this point, don't we? Deja vu. What, yeah. What can I say? I know. Th- thigh injury pulling out of the US Open. And then you, you've obviously had the difficulties with the Olympics and with Wimbledon with, with COVID. And it's not been the best of, best of time for her. Um, but hopefully she'll be able to come back next next season. Well, the difference at that, that level of sport between being fit and not being fit is, is you know, a hair's breadth. And the trouble is if you're not at the very top of your game, you're just not going to be able to compete and you run the risk of injury. And we've had this with COVID tests. You know, I, I'm sure we all know people that have failed a COVID test only to find two days later, suddenly they've passed. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, when you're at that level, you know, if, you, if there's any doubt whatsoever, then you're out and, and you don't get back in until you've served a, a 10-day period of isolation, which means obviously for the competition, you know, you're finished because no one's going to wait for you. Mm-hmm. So it's just where we are. And it's part, I'm afraid, of the perils of being a sportsman or woman fitness-wise and also in these difficult COVID times where you've got to pass the test and if you don't then it's more difficult to train and it's just you know another another setback but that's part of the psychology of of being a sports athlete at that high level Nathaniel I'm afraid you have to take it on the chin and you bottle down and and you get on with it. Yeah but at least from a British point of view John there is some very very positive news with Emma Raducanu who is now into the third round um, just before we came on air she won a second round match 6263 mm-hmm. um after winning her US de- Open debut I mean we don't want to put too much pressure on her but she's she's doing incredibly well and we saw that at Wimbledon yes yes and I think we ought to applaud uh, all the the emerging talents in every sport and and give them all the encouragement without bringing too much hype to bear uh, because that can place a burden on them that I think they're not really ready uh, perhaps to, to carry. Uh, so all all good luck to her in uh, the next round. Yeah, and and Graham, we we spoken with 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 Ian about her team and we've spoken about obviously the, the, the situation that happened with her at Wimbledon where it, we think the pressure and the, the occasion got a little bit too much. But her team have got their heads screwed on and obviously having having seen what happened, do you think they're going to be a lot more careful in trying to manage things? And I think, do you think one of the, the things that would have helped in that was that her first round match got changed? Um, she went from playing a very high ranked player to a, to a lower ranked player on a less ranked course. And that took, do you think that took some of the, the big over overriding sort of emotions of the occasion a little bit out of it just to, to, to lessen it? And it'll then help her build up as she goes through. Well, I think John's on the same campus, me. We've been talking before the podcast about youngsters in sport being put under too much pressure unnecessarily, which in my view, we had a little bit of a difference of view in this, if memory serves me right, Nathaniel, uh, with regards to uh, uh, tennis and in, in any sport where clearly the Wimbledon exercise was a mistake and she was unprepared. Uh, they're not going to make the same mistake again. I mean, one thing's never been in doubt. She's got the talent. She's got the ability. Youth is on her side. Uh, I think she's got the fitness and the stamina. Uh, her fitness and stamina, you know, it's not that long ago since Wimbledon will already be uh, higher because you, you grow very quickly when you're at that age and at that level. And I think mentally she should be a lot tougher and it should turn out, may, may well be that the, the ultimate army is the whole Wimbledon experience may actually be the best thing that's ever happened to her because it will prepare her for the future. Yeah, and she's the only British woman left in as um, Dan Evans on the men's side of the draw is the only one for us there. But let's talk about Andy Murray and his match against Stefanos Tsitsipas. And I want to talk about a little bit of what I think is controversial game playing from um, the world number three. Um, An eight minutes bathroom break before the deciding set, Graham. I mean... Well, I, I, I'm, I must confess I'm a bit confused because, I mean, certainly Andy's not one to pull his punches and he's entitled to because he's won three opens so he can say what he wants and players, you know, I've got to listen to him and officials will listen to me because he's such an icon in the sport. Um, apparently, if I got this right, there was nothing illegal that actually happened and it was within the rules. I don't think it was in, within the spirit of the game. But what's the problem? What's the, what's the problem of going to the loo for eight minutes before the game starts? 
Well, if I, th- I think part of part of Andy's problem, and it's, I think it's the same issue that came in his um, um, Tissipas's second round match against Adrian Mariano, where he again took an eight minute toilet break. Um, so what happened with the, with the Andy Murray match was Andy Murray led two one um, in the going into the the, the third. So he was, um, and I think the problem then was that um, Tissipas won the won the fourth set, which brought it level. And then obviously your fifth set's your big deciding set, at which point he then goes and takes an eight-minute toilet break, um, as well as he also took um, a bathroom break before the third set and had a medical timeout in the fourth, as yeah, well yeah. as... Yeah, I, I, yeah. John, does it seem unreasonable to you going to the toilet and spending eight minutes? I mean, that's the sort of time I was spending. I suppose if, if it becomes a regular occurrence... A regular, I get the pun there, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does raise the, the issue of the question, you know, is this an intentional ploy to give himself a bit of time out um, and perhaps to cause some distress to his opponent or some upset to his opponent? And obviously Andy Murray was was quite um, put out by what happened, and uh, hence his strong words after the, the match. But was it not a benefit, Nathaniel, to Andy Murray as well by having an eight-minute break and getting a rest? Well, I, I don't... I don't know. I mean, the same thing happened in Tizipas' second round match. So he was leading 2-1 and he just lost the third set and he then went and took this eight-minute bathroom break. But his opponent had to ask for tennis balls to come to, to actually hit tennis balls to stay loose. So, you know, there's a psychological thing. You know, if you've just you've just won that that second, that third set, you know, you're really yes. hyped up and suddenly That's there's this true. big pause. Yeah. All of that emotion, all of that, that excitement, that anticipation, that sort of hype just sort of drops out of the match. And yes, yeah. yes, it's yes, it's completely within the bounds of the law, and there's no arguing on that one. But is the timing the timing's a little bit, you know, he's just Suspect. won that. Yeah, you know, Andy's probably at that point a bit pumped. He's going, all right, all right, I've just lost, I've lost this set. Right, I'm going to bounce back. This is a deciding set. I can do this. I, I can win this. And then you know, there's a big, there's a bit this big pause. I mean, well, I suppose it's like golf. You know, on the odd occasion where we hit a really, really good ball, Nathaniel, chances are the second shot after that is going to be equally as good because you're suddenly in that mode and you're suddenly connecting with it and you're not afraid to take the shot. And I suppose if Andy was being forced to wind down and he's not dictating how long the break is going to be because the player concerned, who's who's, who's requested the break and has been granted it, is deciding when he's going to come back. He can you know, spend time relaxing, getting himself psyched up, you know, getting some fluids or whatever. And if Andy's just standing there waiting around, I can see why he would be angry about that and think that it's unsporting. But at the end of the day, rules are rules. And, you know, we all have to play within the rules. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of looked at it and went, all right, yeah, it's in within the rules. It's a little bit game. But it'd be the sort of thing of, you know, Euro 2020 final deciding penalty. And, you know, Jorginho stood there ready to take it. And Jordan Pickford um, walks down the tunnel and disappears for eight minutes to go to the bathroom and then comes back. You know, that it, it changes the yes, context so I, of, I would, of the I thing. Would, I would agree with that. I mean, what would happen in bowls, John? Uh, 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 you know, you, the final end, it's all square, and then your opponent decides they want to go to Lou. What would be the ruling there? Uh, they would be allowed to go. Um, but uh, how long? Uh, they wouldn't be expected to be there for very long. A regular period of time. Few minutes, a few minutes. Um, that, that has happened uh, in, in some competitions we've, we've been playing in. I think the key phrase, the phrase that you used earlier, Graham, was the spirit of the the, the game. Yes. Uh, it may be within the rules, but I think Andy Murray's questioning, was this really within the spirit of the yes. sport? Do you think, Nathaniel, that, uh, I mean, the overall opinion, is it with Murray or against him on this? Um, he got booed for his eight-minute break in the second set, so I think the opinion is with Murray. Yeah, but he um, lost. He, he did lose, and yes. I think he'd have said the same. He, he said he said he'd have said the same thing if he'd won. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, um, Tissapas has played within the rules. He's got into Andy Murray's head a little bit, and I think, you know, we see that happen in sport. If you can get in your opponent's head, you, you're going to win. And is that's there a lot of uh, is there a lot of sort of borderline underhand psychology in bowls, John? Um. There the probably is. There probably is some, but there, there, there's not much. Uh, and locally, uh, people are competitive, but uh, within the rules and generally in very good spirit. If you win, you rejoice. If you lose, you congratulate your opponent and you sit down and 
have a drink with them afterwards. So it, it tends to be quite good in that sense. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to hear the trash talk involved in a, in the middle of a balls match. You walk up, well, and, it, you talk to him, staring him down. At the, in the, but it strikes me as, as a game that can change very quickly because you can be several yeah. points up and then you lose very quickly. You get a bad run of a, of a couple of, of ends, and uh, you're you're very close to your opposing player. You've got a lot of eye, eye contact. You've yeah. got a lot of physical contact. You've got a lot of sort of body language, if you like. So I, I I'd be surprised if there's perhaps you're you're missing an undercurrent of obscure behaviour, John. Possibly. Oh no, that does go on from time to time. But um, in my experience, there have been more people uh, ready to to spot that and deal with it and say, you know, that's not the spirit of the game. Right. Um, so it's been pretty good like that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, very, very interesting. Well, let's move away from tennis, and I want to quickly talk about football. Obviously, we've had the, the big deadline day. Um, we've obviously got the, the obvious stories, which we will come to in a second. But I just want to talk a little bit about um, Edward leaving Celtic. Do you think that they're going to regret that decision, Graham? It's all down to money. It's all down to money. I mean, Celtic need money. And they've had a you know a terrible season last year, and they've lost substantial revenue with not being in the Champions League, not being you know in Europa League, um, and not winning the the, the title, uh, losing their manager. It's you know it's it, they've lost everything, and they didn't win anything at all last year. So, from a revenue point of view, I don't really think, in fairness to them, and I'm not a fan of Scottish football as you know, because uh, I don't think it's sustainable in its present format. I don't really think they had any choice. And, you know, I, I don't really have anything against teams at any level in any league in the world selling a player. You know, it's like, you know, you, you make a profit on your house. And what it, the, the issue is what to do with it. How do you reinvest that money? You know, and there's no, there's no problem in cashing in as long as you invest that money wisely. And that's, that's more difficult than selling the player. So I think we need to look at the question later on in the season to say, where, where are Celtic in the table? And what have they done with that money? Are you a football fan, John? Yes, yes, I enjoy football very much. You got you got a team that you particularly follow? Well, as a little boy, I used to go and watch Rangers one week and Airdrie the next week. My father was a great Airdrie supporter. And then my best friend as a teenager was a Celtic fan. So occasionally we'd go to Parkhead together and watch Celtic. So I enjoy football. Uh, there's no one team I particularly cheer on at present, but... Uh, I do watch it a lot on television and uh, like to see good quality football. Yeah, very good, good quality football. Um, just obviously, we've got the big transfers we want. We're going to talk about. I'm a little bit concerned for St Johnston though. Uh, the loss of Jason Kerr, I think, is going to they're going to struggle with. You know, he's, he's your centre, he's your centre back in the middle of your three, and he's your captain. I think it'll be interesting to see how that's going to affect him. But we have we have to talk about. Messi and Ronaldo, as much as, you know, you can sit in one camp or the other. Messi to Paris, um, John, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I must say I was quite struck by the the emotional departure from Barcelona um, and very quickly replaced by a joyful welcome to Paris Saint-Germain. He says, Um, try not to laugh. Yeah, big bucks, big bucks. Probably it's it's gone way overboard uh, with the, the money that these these guys are making. Um, and I suppose the question has got to be asked too: At what stage do these superstars um, begin to hit the borderline where they're beginning to wane? Um, I mean, from last night, Ronaldo scoring two goals for Portugal in the last five minutes. Um, obviously, he's not on the wainers yet, but. Um, there is a limited lifespan, I suppose, uh, in terms of football for both Messi and Ronaldo. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to risk. watch. It will be interesting to watch that Paris front line, though, with Messi and Mbappe and, and Neymar. Uh, but uh, Graham, Ronaldo to Man United. Well, let me come on. Can I comment on Messi? Yeah, comment on Messi first. Because I thought the whole thing was a farce, an absolute farce and a bit of a joke and quite insulting, really. It reminds me of a very, very wise man in golf, a commentator. Peter Alice, who says, you know there's a problem in the sport when it's not just the, the stars that are travelling by, by their own private jet. And he was referring to caddies, because that's how, how rich the game had become and getting out of hand. This whole thing about money was true from a Barcelona point of view, because they're, they're in a real mess and they're, they're technically bust. 
All he had to do was say, listen, guys, no problem. I'm a multi, 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 multi millionaire. So I'll play for you for 100,000 a week. And that would have been fine. There'd be no issue at all. So it was about the money. And, and any, any concept that it wasn't about the money, I just think that's really, really foolish and defying any logic. He could have said, you know, I've got so much money in the bank, I don't need it. Do me a deal where for every goal, goal I score or every point that we win as a team, you give me so much money, but I'll play for you for a basic for 100,000 a week. Now, that's still a substantial amount of money. And that would have shown, I think, some sincerity and that what he was saying was honest because anything else than that, I just think it's just smacks of dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very. Th- I, I mean, I sort of t- looked at it a little bit differently. I think you know, but Barcelona have been on decline, for, been in decline for a while. I think they lost the likes of Xavi and Iniesta, and never really replaced that midfield quality. I think the decision to move Suarez on was a little bit questionable. Obviously, the Neymar decision was dictated by he didn't want to be a messy shadow and how that's going to play out. But I think he would have liked to have stayed there if that option had been there. I just think. The situation that they're in, there was there was no way they could have made that work. They were they were struggling to find the play money to pay the players players they signed on free agency, the likes of Aguero and Depay. I think I think the well, I think yeah. he was going to go at some point. I think what you say is absolutely true, Nathaniel. I agree with you, but I think what what message would it have sent if he put his hands up to all his fellow superstars, the Neymar's and even the Ronaldo's of this world, and said, "Listen, boys, we've made millions, billion, even you know." Uh, you know, there's still questions being asked about how much Beckham and how much Ronaldo are actually worth. I think it's a lot higher than people think. So if you put his hand up and say, listen, why don't we put some money back into the sport? Because the club that made us is in real, real trouble. And they could have done it on a profit share. They could have done it on an equity share. There was a deal to be done. He didn't do it. And in the end, he just continued to be a mercenary by going to PSG. And I suspect other clubs may have the last laugh because, you know, we know in sport, in, in, in sport teams, when you have so many big stars together, gelling them together and actually making them play well as a team and making them hungry enough, that's a different ballgame altogether. I'm not so sure that PSG will get the success that they think they're going to get just because they've got the likes of Neymar and Messi there. Because you get them on a cold Scottish day or London day, uh, when the rain is throwing it down and it's minus five and they've all got their leggings on, and it's 10 minutes to go and they need to score. Let's see how keen they are for them. Yeah, I do, I do have to question, so agree with you on that one. I think, I mean, Potter's got a huge job on his hand to get that team to gel, but he's there, he has no excuse at this point to not win everything. He's got the players. I mean, the likes of Donnarumma, um, Hakimi, Sergio Ramos, he's got um, Verratti, Messi, Neymar, um, Mbappe, Angel Di Maria, there's no excuse for him now. And I think he's got a huge job to get those players to play well together. I think, he's, to on a, I think he's on a hiding onto nothing. I mean, John, in your bowling club, and Bitlockery bowling club, if you suddenly start poaching all the top players from around the country and down south and you don't win all the championships, then you're going to look rather silly, aren't you? We are indeed. We are indeed. Although that's an unlikely scenario. You've just <laughs> but the, uh, the the Ronaldo one, Nathaniel, which you asked about earlier, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. And we obviously don't know what was going on behind the scenes. And maybe it was in the pipeline for a long, long time. And maybe he had no intention of going to City and it was just a wind up. I, I was surprised when I heard that, given his bond that he has with Ferguson and with some of the players that are still there and ex-players likes of Keenan and Ferdinand. It was a brilliant piece of business by Manchester United, absolutely pulling it out of the bag. Absolutely wonderful. you got to remember, he's, he's what, 36 now, is he? Yeah, something like okay. that, yeah. But he's not 36. He's the same age as Rooney. The difference is that Ronaldo is an athlete, a true athlete. The man is not 36. He's 30. He can still run as fast as everyone on the pitch. Did you see his body when he took off his shirt after scoring two goals in Portugal? I mean, good heavens, for a 36-year-old, it is absolutely incredible. He has a hunger and a passion for the game, just like he had when he was 14 or 15. The money they will make commercially off the field with him being in the team. And here's the key thing for me. Every player sitting in that dressing room will want to sit beside Ronaldo. Even the big players of Pogba and all the rest of it will want to show they are just as good, if not better, than Ronaldo. 
So the team is going to be absolutely buzzing and they're going to be working their socks off because he will lead by example. And there's not one player in the whole Manchester United team that will want to be outdone by Ronaldo. And Ronaldo will take no prisoners whatsoever. He wants to go out with a big, big bang and to prove a point. And there's no reason why Man U can't go on A to win the Premier League and to win the Champions League. And that then opens up beautifully. And he's not stupid for Ronaldo to say, right, OK, well, my last throw of the dice now is 38. I'll go to America for two years. And he can get a much better deal in America if he's won Champions League and Premier League with Man U. With Man U. It's a win-win-win. And I suspect a lot of clubs in, in England are thinking, oh, dear. Yeah, well, you just said about him living from example. I would be very, very unsurprised if by January he's taken the armband off Harry Maguire. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, my big concern is how is it going to affect the likes of Greenwood? Um, we've already seen Dan James shipped off to Leeds from them. I'm a little bit concerned. Obviously, they've now got Ronaldo. Ronaldo's going to be, he's going to play up top. You've got Fernandez will play behind him, Rashford on one side, Sancho on the other. But it's how he works in Greenwood. And Greenwood has come on leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. And I just hope that, I mean, he has still got a little bit of time to, to reach his prime. And I think having Cavani and Ronaldo there to learn from, the same way Rashford and Martial learned off um, Ibrahimovic when he was there. I think we'll do him a huge amount of good, but I do think Oli needs to make sure that Green will still get some game time. Well, I think players like Cavani are probably more under threat because they're they're middle aged compared to to Greenwood, and you know they're they're limited to what they can learn. Whereas someone like Greenwood wants to learn. And don't forget, you know, there's loads and loads of, of top competitions which they play in, and they want to win all the cups. So all they're doing is diluting the team across that. Ronaldo's not going to play in you know in, in every in every single game. So the competition for places will be stiff. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I think, ironically, it may be a problem for the older players who are already established. And frankly, I think they've got more to lose. Mm, very, very true. And we'll have to wait and see. But very quickly before we go, Graham, um, quick word on your man Grealish to City. Bad business, overpriced, a good player. He's not worth anywhere near 100 million. It is ridiculous. What are they thinking? Oh, not the reaction that I thought we were going to get, but that is um, all we've got time for. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, You're John, for, for joining us. And thank you, Graham. Pleasure. Sports Point, a Heartland multimedia production. Find out more at www.heartland.scom.